Good morning. It's good to be together. I uh, love that video because we do have all these things in our life that, you know, if you have a phobia, then you know what it's like to have an irrational fear and how it's impossible to explain it to someone else. Uh, I don't really have a phobia except maybe a phobia of phobias. Like, I'm really scared of having something I'm really irrationally scared of, and so far so good, I guess. But um, last week we started a new series about how some of these complicated aspects of the human condition, of human nature, fit into the life of faith in God's grace. And um, so we, we started last week with ambition, um, this idea that like we're, we're drawn to, as much as we're drawn to a life of ease and comfort, we also have this like intrinsic aspiration for things that are just out of our reach, for things that we don't yet uh, contain or control or have. And so we have this intrinsic aspiration to pursue something more in our life. So how does that work with the life of faith? Next week, um, Paul is going to consider uh, our fascination with things like wonder and mystery, but yet our need for certainty. So like, how does, how does that complication fit into the life of faith? And this morning, we're going to explore our complicated relationship with fear. Fear is like this, it's a mixed bag, right? Because, you know, we need it. Without it, we're like this two-year-old that is just walking off edges and eating nickels and there's all kinds of things that we do, hand on the stove. I mean, without fear, we do all kinds of things that could really hurt us or even worse. And yet, without, yet when we, fear is in control of our life, it can get so much worse than just a simple phobia, right? It can drain the life out of life. It can debilitate us. Sometimes without us even realizing it, fear is the thing that is paralyzing us, that's keeping us from moving forward into the life that we were meant to live. So we have this complicated relationship with fear. And that also, that makes it difficult to see how does it and doesn't it fit into the life of faith. And so I think the analogy that we used last week for ambition also kind of works with fear. So last week we said this, in the journey of life, ambition has to be in the car, but it can't be in the driver's seat. And I like that, and I think it's also true for fear. So fear can't drive our life. If it does, we're going nowhere, right? But if we are in so much denial about uh, the complications, the difficulties, the dangers of real life that we kick fear out of the car completely, that's no good either. And I see that happen a lot, especially with teenage boys. I work with teenage boys a lot as a teacher and a coach, and they tend to be a little bit on the um, two-year-old side of the mentality, right? And so I remember one time where we were coaching in a basketball game and we were down by one point with just a few seconds to go and the, the coach called a timeout and we all got in a huddle and this one player, he goes, coach, I'm, get me the ball. Get, I'm feeling it. And the coach just looked up exasperated and he looked at the stat guy and he goes, give me the stats. And he took the stats and he was doing this and he goes, Cole, you're one for 13. You're not feeling it. But Cole, I, you know, I loved it. Cole was fearless. And so, but the coach goes, how about we just run a play for our all-state guy instead, right? 
So or another, another young man said to me not too long ago, he, he was in my history class, and he says, yeah, I think I'm going to go to University of Michigan next year. And I'm like, oh, that's great. I said, do you, have a, do you have a fallback plan in case you don't get in or you don't, you know? And he said, well, you know, he, didn't, he wouldn't acknowledge the not getting in part. He's like, you know, if I, if I, when I visit Michigan, if I don't like it, I think I'll probably just go to Duke. So that was his, that was his plan B, right? It's this fearless plan. I'll give him that much, right? Give me the ball. I'll just go to Duke, whatever. But, but for a young man who had a C- in my class, I thought that was pretty fearless, right? Probably not a great fallback plan. So like ambition, we need fear in our car on the journey. But it has to be in the back seat. Fear has to be in the back seat. And I think that's why the Bible says seemingly contradictory things like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. So the question is, what should we do with fear? So this morning what I want to do is take a pretty deep look at a passage in the Bible that actually comes from the Old Testament. And, and it's all about this complication of fear in our life. Psalm 3 is what we're going to take a look at. And Psalm 3 is one of 150 um, poems in the book of Psalms. And they're actually technically not poems. They're actually lyrics to 150 songs. And um, that's what the book of Psalms is in the Old Testament. About half of these Psalms were written or they're attributed to King David. And King David is the, the same David of David and Goliath fame, the, the shepherd boy that defeats the giant. Well, he, as he grows up and grows older, he eventually becomes the king, and he's very popular, and things are going great in his life. He's running the country. He's got an amazing family. And David, some things change for him in his life pretty dramatically. And he writes this particular psalm, Psalm 3, as a prayer to God, when he is in a very, very scary place in life. And this is how Psalm 3 goes. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. So David is writing this after his son Absalom has risen up against him in a coup attempt to kick David off the throne and take over himself. So you have to picture that this situation, that David is on the run from his own son, who's leading his own armies against him. And the question is, how does David lie down and sleep in a situation like that? How does he live with no fear in such a fearful situation? What does his faith look like? What's it contain that allows him to live that way in that situation because he clearly has a lot to be afraid of, right? 
He says right there at the beginning, many are my foes, right? He is referencing, what he's saying here is that I'm in physical danger, literal danger to my body. Like people want to kill me. My safety is being threatened. Now, there's a lot of things in the Bible that we can relate to, but I hope this isn't one, right? Thank God this is hard for us to relate to directly, at least most of us, probably relatively few of us have been threatened with violence or heaven forbid, actually been the victim of violence. And those of us who have know what a devastating experience it is. This is my 30th year uh, teaching as a public school teacher and I've had to report child abuse about a half a dozen times. As a teacher, you are a mandatory reporter, so when you suspect it, you have to report it within 24 hours. There's all this paperwork. And about a half a dozen times, I've had to do that. And each and every time, it was an, it was an absolutely horrific experience for me. For me. I mean, I can't even imagine what it must be like to be betrayed like that by someone that, that is supposed to love you to be physically abused by a family member. Horrible, I, I don't even want us to try to imagine it, but that's what's happening to David here. His own son wants him dead. My goodness, I hope that we can't relate to that feeling. But I do think that we all have had times, we've all had seasons in our life where the, where the situation, where the circumstances are so tough. There's just so much drama or trauma in our life that it impacts our physical health, right? We know that, that what stress can do to a body, it can destroy us from the inside out. But that isn't the limit of what David is, is facing here. It's not just physical danger that David is facing. Look at what he says in verse two. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Now, this is more than just about his physical safety. People are claiming that God has rejected David, has turned his back on him. So what's happening is David's very identity is being threatened. It's like his life's purpose. So obviously, from the situation, we know that things as a father are not going well for him, right? But the suggestion that God has turned against him means that his role as king, his, call, his life's calling as king and the wise ruler of his people is also in question. You see, this is an attack. This isn't just an attack on his physical well-being. It's an attack on his fitness, his, like on his competence. Now, I know that that is, a, that is a hot button issue for me. I mean, you can say a whole lot of things to me that might be mean and rude and disrespectful, like, you know, like, Mike, you are a really bad dresser. Or, uh, that car is so lame, right? Or, you're a ball hog, Mike. You, you shoot too much, pass too little. All three of those comments, just in the last couple days I've received, okay? <laughs> Doesn't bother me at all, right? Whatever, right? JCPenney, gray shirts, perfect, right? But you question my competence, and I can feel, man, my back goes up. Like my fitness to do the things I think God's called me to do or as a husband or a father or a teacher, that is a whole other story for me because these are the places in life where we tend to find our purpose. 
like our reason for life. It, it can be our identity. And that's what's going on here. It's not just a physical threat. David is fearing for his physical well-being, but he's also suffering at every level, physically, mentally, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. He is cut off from everything. This is an all-out assault on David. You have to picture it like his reputation is being sullied, his competence is being questioned, his uh, kingdom, there's a coup. This is, an, a, this is a character assassination like going viral on every level of existence. It's a terrifying situation for David. It was about... Um, it's been about 100 years now that psychology has started to really study this uh, and, and dissect fear. And what, what psychologists have, have discovered in the last century or so is that there are different distinctions, there are different kinds of fear that human beings experience. So, for example, they've discovered fear that comes from the imminent threat of harm. All right, that's just straightforward fear. While there's this other kind of fear that they've made a distinction of. This is a deeper and it's a more destructive kind of fear because, precisely because it's vague. And they've given it a name, one that we know, we all know very well now. It's called anxiety. And anxiety comes from this persistent notion or feeling that something's wrong or could go wrong and there's nothing you can do about it, right? One analyst kind of described the difference between fear and anxiety like this. If you're about to cross the street and you're surprised by a car that comes whipping around the corner and you jump out of the way suddenly, that's fear. But as you go on through your day and you're walking down the sidewalk and everything's calm and you're not in any imminent danger at all, as the day goes on, if you have this abiding feeling that you just can't shake of like dread and vulnerability and fragility, that's anxiety. W.H. Auden wrote a poem in the last century, and the name of the poem was The Age of Anxiety. And here's one, just one line. If the moths don't get you, the wolves will. You don't see this on, poem, uh, on posters in like dorm rooms. It's not super... <laughs> uplifting right 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 so here's what we now know about fear there is a healthy fear as in the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom that kind of fear this is a fear that's like a respect and a, a reverence for god and his ways that we can translate that into real life it relates closely to the healthy fear that we have or the respect that we should have for dangerous situations or unsafe people. The point is this, that healthy fear is specific and it's constructive. It's specific and it's constructive. And if you've ever been in a situation like that, then you know that fear can really serve you well. When we lived in Los Angeles, Lisa and I were dating at the time, and I parked the car out in front of her apartment building, and we were going to go inside. And as I walked around the back of the car like this, there was a gentleman coming down the sidewalk with a long trench coat on. Lisa was getting out of the passenger seat right here. And as he's walking up, right, I was just going to walk straight. I don't want to 
you know, give the impression that I was going to open the door for Lisa. I wasn't. I was just going to walk in. But I saw this guy coming, and he, and, you know, some alarms started to go off. And as he got right about here, Lisa's here, all right, he has this coat. He pulls back this trench coat, and he's got a gun. And it's got like a, I don't know guns well, but it's got a clip on it. And I knew right then we were in very, very big trouble. And fear kicked in. And so I quickly grabbed Lisa, threw her in front of me like, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I did not do that. Okay. Never even crossed my mind. Promise. What actually happened was that happened and I put my hand up like this and jumped in front of her and kind of pushed her back in the car. To, to stop Lisa from getting out of the car. And before I knew it, I was in between the guy with the gun and Lisa. It was an instantaneous reaction. I didn't think about it. It just happened. I've never moved that fast in my life, not before or since. Unfortunately, the guy just kept walking. But how did I do that? Healthy fear. My autonomic nervous system just completely took over. There's this enormous burst of energy and strength and focus. Fear can be healthy. There is a specific threat to something or someone concrete that you really care about. Move, go, fight or flight. Healthy fear is constructive. Unhealthy fear is completely different. Anxiety is not specific. It's not concrete. It's generalized. It's vague. It's undefined. You're not really sure why you're afraid. And it's incredibly destructive because your nervous system is doing the same thing like a guy's walking by with a gun. It's always stuck in the on position. It's life in permanent fight, flight, or freeze mode. Now, this is very deeply damaging to us, not just physically, but it destroys our ability to be real and to be honest because we struggle to let our guard down. We struggle to, to feel like we belong and we're hesitant to invite others to be included. We have a lot of problems with this situation because that's what happens when we're in fight, flight, or freeze mode, right? My goodness, guys, I'm in fight, flight, or freeze mode right now. There it is. So, other people, uh, so it, it walls us off from real life because other people, new situations are a constant cause for alarm or distrust. You see, anxiety ultimately is a threat to our existential sense of self. That's what's going on. Carl Jung has a brilliant line. He said, we know things that we don't know that we know. And what he meant by that is, call it what you will, our intuition, a sixth sense, or the soul. But at some level, we all just know. We sense when our identity is resting on or rooted in Something fragile, something that's finite. 
And that means existence and life itself could become a threat to our very being. When we recognize that we are trusting in something that is fragile, maybe it's our health, maybe it's our strength, maybe it's position or popularity, our bank account, youth. When we realize this can't last, what it is that our life is rooted in can't last, the result isn't fear, it's anxiety. I think Auden was right. We do live in the age of anxiety. We do, and it shows. This year on the Grammy Awards, Demi Lovato performed a song that she wrote that comes straight from this place in her soul. It's a beautiful but haunting lament about what life feels like when we are trusting in temporary things. Tried to talk to my piano, tried to talk to my guitar, talk to my imagination, confided into alcohol. I tried and tried and tried some more, told secrets till my voice was sore. Tired of empty conversation, cause no one hears me anymore. A hundred million stories and a hundred million songs I feel stupid when I sing Nobody's listening to me Nobody's listening I talk to shooting stars but they always get it wrong I feel stupid when I pray So why am I praying anyway If nobody's listening Send me anyone. Oh. 
I tried that this morning. There's a couple notes, just a little, just two. Look, when, we, when what we trust in in life is stripped away, when it is exposed as finite, we get real desperate real fast. And this, is, this song, it could be, I listen to this song, and I'm like, this could be a modern-day psalm. So many of the psalms sound just like that. Lord, is there anyone? And Psalm 3 kind of starts out this way. And then, that's his, this is exactly the point that David's at in this psalm. And he turns from what he sees around him to who he believes within him. He admits this right at the beginning. I have reasons to be scared and anxious. But then he turns to God and he says, but you, you are a shield around me. Now, that is a really weird way to describe a shield. It's very interesting. He doesn't say that you're a shield for me. He says you're a shield around me. And see, in the ancient world, there were many kinds of shields. Most were these shields you would hold with one hand. We've seen them in all kinds of movies. They're round like this. You put your arm through it, and you would have that so you could have a spear or a sword in the other hand, and you could fight. It was for hand-to-hand combat. You know, defend and strike, defend and strike. That's what most shields were for. But the shield that David is referring to here is very different because this is a shield that goes around you. David's referring to a, a kind of shield that was used for a very different reason. This shield was huge. This shield was like some of the times these shields were the size of a door and they were curved. And it wasn't used by soldiers who were going to battle the enemy in hand-to-hand combat. It was used by foot soldiers who were going to follow their commander to besiege a fortress. That's the kind of shield that he's talking about. It's a really cool image. So in other words, it wasn't a shield to get you out of danger. It was a shield for going into unsafe situations. Now here's the thing. This is so cool. I love this so much. These shields only worked when you were going forward. They only worked when you were going forward. So when David says, God, you are a shield around me, he isn't saying, God, I know that you won't let anything bad happen to me. He's acknowledging just the opposite. He's saying, I know, God, if I follow you, you will often take me out of my comfort zone. You will ask me to do things. You will ask things of me. You will ask things from me that are a big stretch, that are difficult, that are hard. They may even be dangerous. But I rest easy. I can sleep at night because I know you are a shield around me. And as I follow you forward into whatever battles that you have for me. It is such a beautiful image. If you run, if you retreat, if you give up, you're exposing your backside. Look, following God, the life of faith is hard Responding to grace, we've talked about it recently as the obedience that comes from faith. 
That means it's an ongoing and growing trust in God's goodness for us. But what David is showing us here is that that only works in one direction. And it doesn't mean easy. It means forward. David is saying in this fearful situation that we call life, the only way forward is through. You're more than your successes. You're more than your failures. Everything you got. You're the work. It's dirty work. It's work that hurts. Work that defines you. It's that fire that burns inside you. One more. Be you. It's always been you. You're the work. You want that smoke? Give him that fire. a whole new campaign by Under Armour, and I think it's brilliant, and I think it mimics so much of the gospel of grace. God's protection doesn't work in reverse. The only way is through. You see, he isn't that kind of shield. God is on the move. Jesus' invitation is to follow me. It's a very strong implication that he is going somewhere. He has, to tie into last week, a gracious ambition, and it is moving forward toward it into the fray of life. You know, one of the very first talks I gave at Storyline was around this common misunderstanding or this common misconception about what the kingdom of God is like or what following Jesus is like or really what heaven is like. Because when we think of heaven, if I ask you to think of it, we're all picturing like a gated community like with the pearly gates, and do you get in or don't you? But in the Bible, it's exactly the opposite. Heaven doesn't have gates. Hell has gates in the Bible. It's hell that's on defense. That's the important thing to see here, which is why David is describing God as a shield that's used for attack. That's how it protects you. It's only when you're attacking It's only when you're going through. It's also why Jesus said things like this. I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. Isn't that an amazing image? God is on the move. He is marching to besiege the unhealthy fears and the anxieties that hold people as slaves. And he is a shield around those who are joining him on that mission to besiege that enslaved camp, that fortress that's holding people back. And when we do that, that's where we find the abundant life, the passion, the purpose, and the peace that God made us to desire. So David's fa- David faces his fear by making God his shield. And then he says this, you are the glory and the lifter of my head. You see, at one point in David's life, someone else, something else, I'm sorry, something else was his glory. He built his identity on being a hero of the people. I mean, he slayed the giant. 
He was a massive celebrity. He became a wildly popular king. He was super powerful. He was a moral role model at one point in his life. A very powerful and a very rich man. And when he's writing Psalm 3, all of that is gone. He has lost it all. It's a very scary place. He has been stripped bare, nothing. He, now, he could have easily been filled with fear of imminent threat. He could have been paralyzed by anxiety of this vague, general, existential, like, I can't control this, I can't keep myself safe. I've lost my popularity, my power, my approval, my morality. All of my glory is gone. But when David says, but you, God, are my glory, he's turning to God and his grace as the foundation of life and the foundation of his life. Real quick aside about this. What if anxiety can just be traced to something good, good becoming God? Like some aspect of, of life or the human condition that we like and we should like because it's good. Good looks, good grades, good job, good family, there's nothing wrong with those good things. But when they're the basis upon which we build our lives, when they go from good to God, we've got a problem. When they go from gifts we enjoy to our glory, our souls know something that we don't know that we know. Our souls know that that can't last. And anxiety will hunt us down like 10,000 soldiers. You see, what David is saying is here is that the antidote to anxiety is God and his grace. We are anxious to the degree that we have put our trust in something that can die. This is why we live in the age of anxiety. But God's glory his goodness for us and for the world will never perish, spoil, or fade. Do you see what David is doing here? It's so brilliant, right? He isn't just going, hey, things are tough. It's scary out there. Toughen up. Get out there. The only way is through. And run an Under Armour commercial and then kick us out in there. That's just the first half of it this march into battle. That's only part of it. The other part of what he's doing here is he, he, he's saying, why am I so scared in the first place? And it has something good become my God. Is that the source of this anxiety? You see, what we see here is God is not just a shield around us. He's also the ground that we stand on, the air in our lungs, the light in our eyes, and the strength in our heart. And these are infinitely good and permanent and trustworthy realities that we can build our life on. Living in grace like this empowers us to say in all situations and circumstances, it's not their approval, it's yours, God. It's not serving them, it's serving you. It's not their love, it's your love that I can't live without and can never ever lose. That's what David is saying. Now how can we know that? How can we along with David know that? 
Listen to what David says. He says, God, you are the lifter of my head. He is saying that God is proud of him. Now, that is a crazy thing to say if you know David's story. So when we're, he's saying when we're down, when we're distraught, when we're defeated, God, can, he grabs us by the chin like a little child that's just struck out to lose the game. He lifts our head, our eyes to him, and he says, that's okay. I love you anyway. Now, how does David know that God is proud of him? How can he dare to believe it? I mean, can you imagine going to God as David did, knowing what David's done? Here, here's David's list. He's committed adultery. He's murdered somebody. He's lost the love of his children, his family, his colleagues, his nation. He's lost his job. His life is threatened. He's failed in every single possible way imaginable. And what he's saying to God is, God, I know you know that, and I know you accept me as I am. You forgive me at my worst. I know, God, that you are proud of me. You're the lifter of my head. How does David know that? How does he know that? And if David can know that, we can know that. Because look, I know a lot of you, and there is no perfect person in here, but no one is as bad as David. I promise you. There are some pretty, pretty bad stories out there and up here. But nobody is as bad as David. If David can be sure that God is on his side, that God is proud of him, so can we. So how did David know that? Look what he says. He says, because of your holy mountain. He, this is a prophetic foreshadowing to Jesus on the cross. This is the way that we can know God has accepted us, forgiven us, that he's proud to call us his son or daughter, that he wants to be the lifter of our head, regardless of all the ways that we've failed and fallen short. It's because of on this holy mountain, on the cross, Jesus absorbs all of the shame, the judgment, the exclusion that we heap on one another and that we heap on ourselves in our anxious scramble to be on top of this heap that's sinking into the abyss anyway. To build a, in this anxious mess to build an, our eternal life on a finite foundation. Jesus absorbed all of that on the holy mountain. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to have nothing to hide? Nothing. To come to God as David did. No shame. Do you remember your grandma's face at Christmas when you walked through the door and the embrace and the kiss? Can you imagine the king of all, the creator of heaven and earth, greeting you that way? The God who knows all about you yet is proud of you, lifts your head, invites you to follow him into the, into the fray. What might our lives look like, feel like, if that were true for us? Last thing. Verse eight. It's not enough for David that he's out of fear. It's not enough that he's been set free from anxiety. That isn't enough for David. He wants this for everyone. He desires good for others because here's the deal. There is no true escape from the slavery of fear and anxiety until we live in love. Perfect love casts out fear. We think the opposite of love is hate. It isn't. The opposite of love is fear. Our life, and I made this up, focused entirely 
at ourselves. <laughs> I had to stretch a couple things there. It's too good to pass up on, though, right? It's a bumper sticker. Fear. Fear is ultimately self-centeredness. Love is self-forgetfulness in the cause of somebody else's good. And the key, that is the key that frees us from the slavery of fear.
Fear is complicated. It's absolutely necessary to keep us safe, to help us keep others safe. But it can also be paralyzing, unhealthy fear, the anxiety that comes from building our life on a finite foundation will enslave our souls. We will live constantly on the run. It's no way to live. But if we'll trust God with our very selves, with our identity, with who we are and why we're here, Remembering that he loves us as we are. He'll be a shield around us as we follow him forward, free of fear, into the life of love. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place. We thank you for what you have done for us on the holy mountain. That you have absorbed all of the things that we heap on ourselves and on one another that enslave us, that, capt that capture us, that hold us back. God, I pray that we would be able to move forward following you with a faith in your goodness and grace for us, understanding that you are a shield around us as we join you in your mission of love. As we, pray, as we leave here this morning, I pray that you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming, folks. See you next week.